Unintentional injuries are the leading cause of death in children older than one year. The percentage of deaths in children stemming from unintentional injuries steadily rises from 30% to 50% of all deaths by 19 years of age. Pediatricians and those in the medical community who care for infants, children, and adolescents have a responsibility to provide education and guidance regarding injury prevention. We will discuss how providers can be certain to counsel patients effectively at each age to maximize the prevention of unintentional injuries. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMDXM, Channel 233. I'm Dr. Kathleen Margolin, and joining me from Kansas City, Missouri, is my guest, Dr. Denise Dowd. She is Professor of Pediatrics at the University of Missouri, Kansas City, and Chief of the Section of Injury Prevention of the Division of Emergency Medicine at the Children's Mercy Hospital in Kansas City. Dr. Dowd splits her time between clinical duties in the emergency department and research advocacy and program development in injury prevention for the hospital. It's vital that physicians address injury prevention because we know that it's effective in decreasing rates of injury. Correct. Absolutely. And patients, they want to hear this advice from physicians. They are a rapt audience, particularly when they have an infant. Um, correct. I think people are much more parents that bring their that have a new baby want to do the best for that new new life that they have uh, obligation and responsibility to protect. I, as kids get a little bit older and more freedom and more independent, that may fall off a little bit. So let's talk about technique because uh, the pediatrician might be seeing a new parent, and naturally the new parent is, is anxious about doing the best for this child, and so they're listening. How can the pediatrician go about introducing information in the most effective way? Right. Information, you know, it's important to, at least from an injury point of view, to introduce topics that are going to be appropriate to that kid's developmental level. So, you know, we start off with infants talking about car seat safety, getting the kid transported well. And then we move on to when the kid is older, up moving around, locking up medicines and things like that. And then as they get into exploring their world, making sure that they have a helmet when they're bike riding. I think it's very important to not just passively distribute information to parents that it's important to understand when trying to help people with risk reduction because a lot of times parents are not open to changing their own behavior or influence their child's behavior. Believe it or not, they're not open to that, uh, to understand what motivates them. Sure, lifestyle must come into play. Yeah, lifestyle comes into play, and also what motivates them as a parent. You know, I think for us as physicians, it's like, well, it's obvious you shouldn't smoke around your kids. Mm-hmm. You know, it's obvious that you should wear a helmet. But that's our own perception. It is not the perception of our patients oftentimes. What motivates them might be somewhat different. And so speaking to them on the level of, here, I'm going to give you this medical information, you should not smoke because the results are your child's asthma could flare up and so forth, may not motivate them at a heart level. And that's really what causes people's behaviors to change. It has to be a more of um, a heartfelt level as, as a head. People make decisions with their hearts and not their heads, really. So here's an example for the smoking thing. In my relationship with this parent, recognizing that they have a high premium in being a provider for their family. That's how they view their value in life, that they're a provider, is to say that you continue to smoke your ability to be a provider might be compromised because you are going to get sick and you won't be able to work. And so figuring out what motivates people is very important. Another thing that's important, and this is the whole idea of change, if you're talking to an adolescent about wearing a bicycle helmet or talking to a parent about getting in their 
five or six-year-old to wear a bicycle helmet is to figure out where they are in their level of change. You know, people are pre-contemplative. They don't think they have a problem. They're contemplative. They're thinking about changing their behavior. Then they go into a readying phase where they're ready to make a change, and they make the change, and they go into a maintenance phase. And that's very important because there's different techniques for each of those stages. And how how can the clinician be aware of these and and make use of them? Well, one of the things that's important is, you know, we're not trained in this type of counseling in medical school or Mm -hmm. in our residencies. You know, this is the realm of of counselors and psychologists. And it's interesting that although we're expected to educate our patients, we don't have the techniques that work the best at our disposal. And so one of the ways to do it is to get some education in what's called um, motivational interviewing or brief behavioral change counseling. You know, it was interesting. I, as I was looking at the different things that pediatricians need to warn and educate the parents of their patients about, I was thinking, you know, they see these infants so frequently during that first year. After the first year, that's when the accidental injuries become the leading cause of death for children, but they're only going to see them once a year, so they're going to have to pack all this information into that yearly visit. But what you're saying makes me think that first year, not only will they cover newborn baby issues, but perhaps begin uh, developing a relationship with parents and understanding them enough so that they can know what motivates them, what will move them to do the best for their children in terms of safety. Right, exactly. That's, it's very, very important because, as you say, your visits with that parent are going to fall off over time, and so your opportunity as a physician to see what you can do to influence their behavior is actually, you know, you don't have that much opportunity. And now what's, what's required, you look at the vaccinations that are required now and all the other stuff that's recommended in terms of, of the advice and, and the anticipatory guidance to deliver parents. It's huge now. Um, and parents are not going to be able to take that all in. It also does point to another role for physicians in terms of changing people's behavior, and that is is what can you do to deliver this information in other venues, um, whether that's at a child's school or, or a church or in another fashion. And I think this takes some creative thinking on the part of physicians. Right. Traditionally, was it just flyers, handouts, um, information that was just given to people, maybe in brochures at the pediatrician's office? Traditionally, that's what it is. We have the Injury Prevention Program at the American Academy of Pediatrics, and we've just actually introduced a violence injury prevention program. And it's been a challenge to say, okay, now we have um, 40 handouts for you to give parents through the age of, you know, um, 15. This is a very sort of passive way to do it, and I think what needs to happen is that we need to develop a little bit more user-directed ways of accessing information, especially with the younger generation of parents who have a different way of learning than the older generation of parents. If you've just joined us, you're listening to Reach MDXM 233, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Kathleen Margolin, and my guest is Dr. Denise Dowd, professor of pediatrics at the University of Missouri, Kansas City, and chief of the section of injury prevention in emergency medicine at the Children's Mercy Hospital in Kansas City. Dr. Dowd, what you're really talking about is that it's not enough just to give information to parents about keeping their children safe from injury. It's more, it requires the responsibility of understanding how to educate them and how to reach them. Yes, it's absolutely true. And you know, there, there are these techniques that you, you learn with behavioral change counseling that you can apply to not just injury prevention, but you can apply down the line, all the way down the line, whether that's smoking or um, adherence to asthma medications or whatever it is. 
you also work in an emergency room clinically. Are there certain injuries that you see repeatedly in your clinical work in the emergency room that are telling you that tell you that parents are not being reached um, with regard to certain behaviors, that they're not aware that certain risks um, are out there for their children? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think about the things that come to mind when you say they're not aware. I would think um, two things come to mind related to products. One of them is fireworks, which here in Missouri, um, people tend to use those quite a bit, and there's not really good enforcement of laws around that. They're seen as toys. It's fun, Fourth of July, and uh, we see so many injuries around fireworks. Parents let their kids use uh, fireworks. BB guns, that's another thing, air guns, considered toys by parents. These um, air guns, we uh, did a study looking at severe air gun injuries and found deaths in three hospitals that we looked at and severe interabdominal injuries, even injuries that went through the skull and transected the brain. You know, it's, as we said, it's, it's more than, you know, you'll put your eye out kind of thing. The ordinary daily stuff that people don't consider. You know, it's interesting. The media drives fear of your child being abducted or, you know, carjacking with your kid in a car, et cetera. However, what we see in terms of numbers in the ER is ordinary stuff, like kid was not wearing a helmet when they were bike riding. You know, they were just going down the block. Child was not restrained in a child passenger safety seat. Child was not in a booster seat because they wouldn't use it. They wanted to be in a, um, in a regular seat belt. So that kind of stuff. You mentioned BB guns and air guns, and part of a lifestyle uh, for some people is gun ownership. And um, while I believe most people with young children don't own guns, there's a significant number of people who do. And you've done some research on gun storage and firearm injuries. Actually, just to clarify, about 43% of people with kids own a gun. So actually, it's almost almost half of people with a kid do, do own a gun. And the safe storage of a firearm in the home is very important. Of course, you know, the American Academy of Pediatrics advocates, you know, if you have a child in the home, there should not be a gun in the home. And that is what will stand as the safest practice because we know that just the presence of a gun in the home, regardless of what, how it's stored, is, um, does increase your risk of, of homicide and suicide in the home. But if a person feels that they must keep a gun in the home, that that should be stored with the bullet separate, the ammunition separate from the gun, and both locked where the child cannot have access to the combination or the key. This behavior is a bit different for physicians who are counseling their patients because gun-owning families resist safe storage of firearms for a variety of reasons. They may resist. I, I think, you know, we did a program here where, you know, in, in Missouri, there's, we have a lot of gun owners here. There are a lot of hunters. And I would say it actually is the rare person that resists storage. I think there's some misperceptions about whether the kid knows where the gun is or not. I think parents oftentimes say, well, I don't need to lock it because it's hidden. And when you present to them, there's multiple studies that show that, guess what, whether you think so or not, your kid knows where that gun is. We find that people are pretty amenable. We had uh, a program for a long time in this community where nurses went out and spoke to parents through PTAs, and there was a hunger for the information, and people did at least report that they intended to change their behaviors. Understanding how um, families live and being able to communicate with them effectively certainly seem like um, the, the best recommendations for pediatricians trying to keep their patients safe from injury. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's important, uh, educating, and also having pediatricians have a role in the community where they become advocates for child safety. It's 
you know, we assume that, you know, city planning offices or other offices that are charged with keeping the community safe are considering kids. But it's interesting, and this comes up in the engineering, when you're talking about roads and you're talking about areas where there's parks where kids may go into the street, very frequently you don't find that children are considered in the formula at all. And so pediatricians, I think, have a special role to be the voice of children in their communities because a lot of what's done in terms of legislation in terms of developing safe communities for kids is done not in, you know, that the impact doesn't come in the physician's office. It really comes in the, at the community level. Thank you for listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMDXM233, the channel for today's medical professional. I'm Dr. Kathleen Margolin, and my guest has been Dr. Denise Dowd. She is Professor of Pediatrics at the University of Missouri, Kansas City, and Chief of the Section of Injury Prevention of the Division of Emergency Medicine at the Children's Mercy Hospital in Kansas City. For comments and questions, send your email to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening.